Jan, good morning. How are you this morning? Ah, oh, look, I'm excited. You're excited? I'm excited. We're I'm going into the future. Where are you going? Uh, and to the past. Well, take going away. Going back into the 40s. We're going back in time, uh, where it seems a lot of murder was prevalent. And we're going back to talk to Robert Gott. So, Robert, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks very much, David. It's the port, lovely to be here. The Port Fairy Murders continues on from your previous title, The Holiday Murders. Who would have thought so many murders could occur so quickly? Um, but this is slightly unusual. What have you done? Well, uh, The Port Fairy Murders actually picks up the day after The Holiday Murders ends. So How? it's not a new case. There's, there are loose ends at the end of The Holiday Murders that have to be tied up. But then there are loose ends at, at the end of the Port Fairy murders. Does that mean... That there will be another novel. Of course it does. But how common is that? I mean, with with a uh, crime, the same characters appear, the same heroes appear. But often it's a different case, yeah. Yes. And, and, and the, the, the amount of time that's passed is... is usually unclear so you end up with with Ian Rankin for example who if you actually worked out how old um, his detective is he's you know, 180 or something but um, the Port Fairy Murders begins thoughtfully with a summary of the holiday murders which doesn't give away any of the twists in the in the story but it just sets the scene so you don't have to have actually read the holiday murders before you read the Port Fairy Murders but, but one hopes that after you've read the Port Fairy Murders you'll go back and read the holiday murders but the characters are still carrying over the same injuries. Well, the characters are carrying the psychological and physical injuries from the holiday murders. Does that, does that make it easier or harder to write the next um, book? Neither, well, the same, really. The, these are, these are, are more difficult for me to write than my other series, which is the William Power novels, mm. which are black comedy mm. novels, also set in the 1940s. A bit obsessed by the 1940s. And there's not, there's not a lot of comedy in these, so they're harder for me to write. I, I find writing the William Power novels just a pleasure... But these, the, the research in these, it's quite, it's not distressing exactly, but it's ugly. You find out ugly things about Australia. Well, speaking of which, let's go back to the 1940s. What is your obsession with it and what's the reason for that? Um, it was because when I was, I was one of those people who didn't so much want to write a crime novel as wanting to have written a crime novel. But... Um, I didn't want to do any of the serious research in, for forensics or um, uh, courtroom drama or police procedural. So the 40s seemed to me to be ideal pre-forensics. And I also didn't want to have a detective, so I chose an actor. I needed someone who was vain but not very intelligent, so of course I chose an actor. But... About the 1940s, I mean, there had would have had to have been some research here. Because oh, plenty, plenty, yeah. I want to just uh, read a little paragraph um, which looks into that period of time, and I'll ask you some questions about the research at the end of it. Germany lost the war at Stalingrad, and the Japs were nongs for involving the Yanks. That's not to say the national socialism hasn't got something going for it. I presume that's what you're referring to when you say Stalin and I shared an interest in politics. I wasn't Robinson Crusoe about the Nazis in the 30s, you know. Mr Menzies saw its good points. But I'll wager he regrets saying anything these days. You actually go back into uh, a past in Australia where there was talk of national socialism and the, uh, the, there was the Australia First movement back then. 
and this reference to Menzies. Yeah, well, the the, the character who actually says that in mm. the book is is a national socialist sympathizer because mm. there were plenty around in the 30s and 40s, and Robert Menzies himself said something in the 30s that he regretted, and he wasn't alone in admiring what Hitler was doing in Germany in the 1930s. And Menzies, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about the nobility of the absence of democracy. It was, it was something, I can't remember exactly what it was. It does was this bizarre. Appear, does this appear in John Howard's biography of the great man? I haven't, I haven't <laughs> read it, so I don't know. But, but um, it was surprising to, to read that. And he certainly, uh, he, he um, regretted saying it because in the 1930s, Perhaps it wasn't clear what was going to happen. I think it was, but perhaps it wasn't to but him. He f- he thought there was something noble in this um, absence of democracy, which I do think is odd. But that speaks to the dangers in which the Australian society or any society finds itself in terms of moving into the future with a political system or, or yeah. whatever. Yeah. And sort of a sure. stra- how close was Australia? It was on the cusp, was it? Or No, look, uh, there was a movement in Australia in the 1930s and 40s called Australia First. And the, the Australia First movement had a, a magazine called The Publicist. And The Publicist cost sixpence. It was quite a glossy magazine. And you could buy it anywhere or subscribe to it. Um, it was full by the 1940s. It was it had the most extraordinary material, uh, the anti-Semitic material. I mean, it would actually say things like the only good Jew is a dead Jew, or there'll be no um, the solution to uh, um, anti-Semitism is to kill all the Jews. Now it's there in black and white, astonishingly. Mm. Um, that movement. Um, the the um, people who were on the board of the publicist were all interned in uh, 1942, I think. And they tried to form a political party. They were always fringe dwellers, and there were also really hardcore Nazis Mm. in in Melbourne and Sydney, and Western Australia, peculiarly, particularly Western Australia. And And they they were proper Australian Nazis. Nazis. Yeah, and and I... um, in the holiday murders, I make a distinction between what I call the the um, drawing room Nazis and the field Nazis, because there were there were a group of people who were who considered themselves to be national socialist aesthetes. Yes. So they were interested in the bizarrely in the art, architecture, and design in a way um, aspects of national socialism. And they appear in the holiday. They murders. They appear in the holiday murders, yeah. and then they uh, join what they need. Is a is a more violent component in order to um, consolidate their political position, and that's where they draw on a, a person called Ptolemy Jones and George Starling. Well, this is where we get to George Starling because yeah. he's the character that who's carried over carried because over. he actually survives mm. the Holiday Murders. He's one of the loose ends, so he's my Moriarty. <laughs> well, basically, he also is the one that enables us perhaps to get down to Port Ferry. Yeah. Because now we can go into the body count. Because Oh, it's not that big, David. <laughs> because we have John Starling dying first, mm. and that John his father. is George's father. Mm. Yes, so that sends the investigators down there. Why Port Ferry? What's well, I, I wanted to do a couple of things in this novel. I wanted to to explore having dual narratives. So there, there's there's a line of narrative that's in Melbourne in the, in the newly formed Homicide Department, which was formed in 1943 which seems very late to me, but that's when it became a discrete unit. And that's one line of narrative. And then I wanted to have a kind of golden age of crime 
story, which is always set in a small town or a small village, and Port Ferry seemed perfect for me because it's a long way from Melbourne, or it was then. It's pretty much an intact Georgian fishing village. I don't know if you know Port yes, Ferry. Yes, it's yes. really beautiful, yeah, it and is. it's got so many gorgeous Georgian fishing, um, not fishing, but Georgian cottages yeah. in it. So it's, it's on an elegant, small scale, and I thought, well, just like an Agatha Christie novel, what you do in such a place is, of course, you start having murders in such a place and it was just serendipitous that that uh, george starling in we learn in the holiday murders actually comes from a place called mapunga which is close to port ferry so i was able to pull those two narratives together and they meet about halfway through the novel and what in an unexpected way what does port ferry enable you to explore um well i was interested in uh, the Catholic-Protestant divide in the 1940s, and I know that existed right up to the 1970s, but it was very pronounced in the 1930s and 40s, and it is magnified in a small rural town because everyone knows each other and the churches can be seen wherever you're standing in the town. And it's hard for us to understand today, but in fact, it was an incredibly important and unpleasant part of social life mm. in the 1940s. You did not, if you were a Catholic, you did not set foot in a Protestant church. Yeah, and vice versa. Yeah. And you can see it in Melbourne's architecture. Yeah. St Paul's is centre mm-hmm. of Melbourne. St Pat's out of what would have then been. But on high ground. But on the Catholics are very good at that. <laughs> Grab the high ground. Um, body counts continue. We have... We have George Starling going on a bit of a rampage, burning things and yes, killing yep, people. Yep. Stephen McNamara and Sturt Menadieu, mm-hmm. uh, two sort of innocent uh, young men. But what have you done here? Well, I wanted to introduce also um, the um, the element of homophobia in the 1940s. And the police force were, um, <laughs> in some ways, they were dreadful. That they would go, they, they would find out who was homosexual and they would use that they would blackmail that person well this is how the book ends i have a list of names and addresses i liberated that page from stuart manager's notebook o'dowd smiled anyone interesting on this list i've done some discreet checking so we've got two detectives yeah and there's a very important person in the port ferry murders who is now uh, in, in the next novel, we understand that he will be in serious danger. So are you intending to use this? Oh, yes. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But it won't be the only plot line. Yes. Uh, any good crime novel needs, I think, a couple of plot lines. But it's also a manifestation of the time. Yes. And, and the attitude yes. of the day. Yeah, but, you know, those, those times haven't gone away. Mm. They haven't gone away. It's dangerous to imagine that they have. Right. They're still here. So these, these novels, they, they may sound like faint echoes but they're not really they're, they're um, still reverberates yeah. interesting um, continuing with the bodies Matthew Todd uh, a small town entrepreneur in mm-hmm. some ways yeah. and we find his body in a house how did it get there um, we also then have his family Rose Abbott and Aggie Todd um, all uh, don't give anything away. I'm though, not giving anything away. I'm just just doing the, the body the count. The interesting thing about that that murder was that it is based on a real murder that took place in Bundaberg in the 1950s in Queensland. But the real murder was so 
extraordinary and bizarre. Now, are we talking it, Matthew Todd's case? Or? Yeah, that case, that the murder that happens in Port Ferry, my fictional murder in yeah. Port Ferry, is actually based on a real murder that happened in Bundaberg, but at a different time. Right. I used it because it was extraordinary. In fact, it was so extraordinary that the real details of the real case just would not work as fiction. I know it sounds like a paradox, but it would not be convincing as fiction if the if if I stuck absolutely to the, the what happened in the real series of murders in Bundaberg. So I had to adjust it to make it convincing as fiction. So I had to actually tone it down. My goodness, it makes, makes you wonder what the the actual murder was. I'll um, tell you afterwards. <laughs> You've got, um, of course, Aggie Todd, who. Um, well, how much can we say about her and her demise and what she does uh, without giving too much away? Because psychologically, she's an interesting case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she is a, I suppose, what would then have been called a good Catholic spinster. And yet? Well, she is a mess of, of, of um, passions, bizarre passions. She has an unhealthy, extremely unhealthy attachment to her nephew which is uh, uh, sexual yes in a way yeah we can't I, no I don't want you to talk about <laughs> don't, we, that. this is this is the challenge of, of yeah. talking about books like this we, we, you know we, we can't give too much away yeah but also it goes into then um, the sort of repression some of these people are under yeah. and it's sort of explodes. Well, a lot of the tension in the novel comes from that kind of sexual repression yes. and, and, and repressed violence. But I, I also wanted to talk about um, the role of women yeah. in the police force in the 1940s, well, just... which is the, why I've put the character of Helen Lord yes. in both novels. Yeah. In, she is seconded to the homicide department by the head of homicide, uh, Titus Lambert, but in real life that would never have happened. There were police women fully... Um, uh, what, what, what's the expression? It doesn't matter. <laughs> they were police women. But they, were ne- they didn't wear uniforms because police command did not believe that they would ever be promoted. So there'd be no reason for them to have a uniform which would require an extra bar to be stitched on the, the sleeve. Oh so they, they wore civvies. Um, it took one, one of the first police women, it took her, I think, 35 years to rise from the rank of constable to senior constable. And that's as far as, as she okay. went. So Helen Lord is there to, to kind of represent where women sat. Yeah. But really, the Port Ferry murders enables us to go back in time to wonder and amaze at, uh, be amazed at uh, how things have changed since then. The role of women, the attitude towards the Jewish fraternity, the rise of the homicide squad, uh, attitudes in uh, country towns, Catholic-Protestant divide... It's uh, an amazing tale and a continuation the day after. So the book is The Port Fairy Murders. The author is Robert Gott, and it's a scribe publication. James. Well, you think he was going back in time. I've got James Bradley here, and welcome back, James. Thank you. The last time I spoke with James was about his book, The Resurrectionist, about digging up bodies and learning from the death, but that was back in Victorian England. James Bradley's new book, Clade, has a very different historical setting. Where have you set it, James? Well, it's set in the future. Set in the future? We, how far in the future? Oh, look, it begins about a year from now, and it goes about 60 or 70 years into the future. In that 60 to 70 years, there's a lot of catastrophes. Just take us a few, through a few of them. 
Well, it's it, it's the story of a family, and it's set against the backdrop of a kind of changing world. Um, and a lot of the catastrophes take stage, take place off stage. But oh, uh, what happens there is a. I mean, there's. England gets flooded, you know, Bangladesh gets flooded, there's a pandemic. Um, but there are lots of things going on in the background crops as well. Fail. Yeah, crops yeah. fail, birds die, bees die. Look, it's a, it's a happy story. I'm quoting something you said from the Adelaide Writers' Festival. To write about the world ending is easy. It leaves the writer with nothing to imagine. Well, you've got a lot of technology in this book and it's rather spooky that some of it already has. Yeah, well, one of the things that was very unsettling about writing the book was that there were a series of... Uh, the, the book cleaves reasonably closely to the scientific literature. I mean, I've kind of fiddled with some of it. But one of the things that was very unsettling about writing it was there are things in it like... At one point, they, they're talking about, you know, maybe there'll be methane belches from the mm. permafrost in the ocean in the Arctic, which is, for 20 years, has been one of those kind of great tipping points they talk about in the climate change literature. Look, if that happens, we're in deep trouble because methane is such a terrible climate change gas. And it, But it's always been 15 or 20 years from now. And I, it, as I got towards the end of the book, you know, it started it's to happen. Started. In <laughs> Siberia, it started to happen. There's another thing actually near the end, where, which is completely science fictional. I made it up. And there's just, at the end, there's a small detail about how the melting ice means that the world's the, the Earth's rotation has shifted slightly, and this was I, I made this up. This was just science fiction. In December, the world, there was an following uh, your words. Oh yeah, in December, there's an article in Nature saying the melting ice means that the world's the, the Earth's rotation is shifting, you know, very slightly. And you kind of like it's, it's, it was actually very unsettling to be writing that kind of thing and then having it kind of chasing you. Well, some of the things you have written about, I can really believe, like genetically modified trees that sort of suck in the carbon uh, dioxide, which, yeah, that's that's fine. And things that I sort of vaguely know about, sims, that, are, you know, sort of these are visual... Well, what what are sims? Uh, in the second half of the book, because the book's in ten sections, yeah. and, and they're kind of, you, you kind of jump into these characters' lives over a long period of time. And in the... Eighth, I think, section mm. seventh or eighth. There, there's a pandemic, and a lot of the world's population dies. And then it picks up again a couple of years later. And there's a young man, and he's got a job making virtual recreations of people who've died. So what you do is you give all of your photos and videos of someone to this company, and they take them away, and they produce a kind of virtual representation of the person, and then they stick an AI inside it, and the AI responds to you you know and, and of course it's a it's smart enough to learn what it should be saying so as you talk to this thing it becomes a better and better simulation of the person that you once knew oh right well that i can believe that it could happen cars that drive themselves i think that's well that's, yeah, that's, we're already well, there yeah 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 <laughs> wearing lenses you know the quite often you talk about through the book characters that put their lenses on to either get into a virtual world or to hear music and feel music all around them well i love the idea of you know doing this without drugs i thought that was great but um these, you talk about the virtual worlds that they have as virtues. Is that a, is that a technical? Oh, that's just something I made up. Oh, another. <laughs> oh, well done you. It was such a good thing. Okay, well now, from um, a made-up word to a term, boiling the frog. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that the book's very much about is this. Uh, boiling the frog is this idea that, you know, it's actually not true, but there's always been a story that you put frogs in water, and if you just put them in boiling water, they'll try and jump out. If you put them into water and then heat the water slowly, they'll just swim around till they cook. Now, it's not actually true, but it's a wonderful kind of 
metaphor for you know kind of what's happening around us we we have this world that's heating up around us and yet we don't seem you know it, it keeps changing and we somehow don't take on board those changes in the next i mean it's like the methane birches belches in the arctic yeah. you know i mean it's one of those things that was in the future and was terrifying 10 years ago and now it's happening everyone's like oh well you know it's happening, <laughs> it's happening. look um as you say, these aren't just haphazard happenings. We see them through the lives of, of people. And we start off, you mentioned Antarctica, and that's where the book starts, at summer solstice, with Adam. Now, what what's he waiting to hear about? The book begins with Adam, who is one of the central characters, waiting to hear from his wife, because they've been in IVF for a couple of years, to find out whether her latest round of IVF has been successful. And one of the things that kind of happened when I was writing the book was, you know, and you start writing about, these kinds of questions and you you very quickly find that you're writing about about time which is one of the things you find yourself writing about very quickly this kind of the big geological spaces of time but also about kind of parents and children which is one of the things I realised I was writing about quite quickly and that sense of connectedness because the book is very much about this kind of trying to capture a sense of the way people just keep move, moving forward through time we just keep moving forward through time and this, this sense that kind of we're in a kind of river You have Adam saying a quote from your book, what sort of world would that child inherit? Uh, Were they really doing the right thing by bringing another life into it? The disaster's happening, but it's also the disasters in the relationships. The pressure of parenting seems to be quite an issue with all the characters here. Uh, It's possibly because I have small children (laughs) myself. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was to take that kind of conventional disaster book or that conventional science fiction novel about this and turn it on its side. So instead of writing a book where all of the stuff that you'd normally expect to be in the foreground was in the foreground, all that stuff was in the background. And the book was very much focused in on these, you know, on the characters in their lives and the way they change over time. So a lot of that stuff takes place in the background and you end up looking at all this stuff about how, you know, how do we deal with each other? How do we connect to our children? How do we, we, we move on? Because the book is very much about trying to look to look at the way that you know people just people just continue being people no matter what the no matter what the situation you know the world's falling apart and they're falling in love falling out of love getting married having children you know our lives go on in the midst of everything even with the pandemic that you speak about you know we one of the mother one of the kids loses their mother in this enormous number millions of dying over in china but then you also give us the personal with uh, dylan losing seeing how his mother contacts and dies in in the house but mm. isolated and it really death is a death but oh you know that was that was really quite touching The last chapter is also set at a summer solstice and it's Izzy who is related through different ways and the extension of families really, isn't it? Yeah, and it's one of the things the book's very much about is that, you know, it begins with this notion of the clade, which is a kind of biological term meaning a group of organisms with a common ancestor. But by halfway through the book, that biological definition starts to break down and the family starts to include people who are not biologically part of the family. Because one of the things I really wanted to get at was that sense of our expansion of not just of the kind of notion of the family which it's going on, but the notion of kind of all of these different ways of being human, different ways of being in the world. So you've got a character who's autistic and, and things like that. And they're all they're all just part of this group of people, you know. As you said, the, the book's broken into sections chronologically into the future. And we don't um, know about the narrator of each section and there was one that was done in first person and I didn't even know the gender 
but right, you know, sort of it all, all their relationships come together at the end and it really becomes a most satisfying read with Izzy, the last narrator, looking out into the skyline and seeing a shimmer and looking at, at it and thinking, well, we don't know what it is, but she's looking at it with hope, a new beginning. Mm. And the book's very much about that that kind of sense that there are always beginnings and endings. You know, the, the, the time and life is a process of continuance and change. You know, and that, that is, it seems to me there's something we need to do when we're thinking about the future generally, but climate change in particular, which is to get away from that kind of catastrophic thinking. You know, because the science might be catastrophic, but once we do that, in a sense, we lose our capacity to take control of it. We lose our capacity to think about it in a kind of useful way. And and what I want to do is to to get back to that sense that, well, look, you know, the future is full of possibility. Yeah. <laughs> full of grief as well, I must be said. But look, quite, often, uh, quite often you give us two similarities, as I sort of talked about the, the, the pandemic with millions dying and one person dying. You also give us it the bees because the, the cover is about bees and we see, well, the, the colonies, you know, perhaps under duress, just as the population was. And another thing that I really liked was that you gave us the whole sense of privacy and ownership. We have um, an early time, an earlier chapter where Summer and her friends, um, Mira and Dan, go into houses and they break in and they break people's privacies and 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 you think is this right and then you have summer again in a typhoon and I'm sorry we didn't have enough time for you to read that wonderful wonderful action bit early in where this tropical typhoon is going through what country England England outside in the Cambridge f- a tropical uh, typhoon and you know she has to break into houses to survive and be up there on the third floor because of the water coming through uh, and look that section was written I think I, I had the floods in Queensland very much in my mind when I was writing them because it's a thing about kind of the real world gets refracted into the book but I mean when I wrote the book one of the things I wanted to do very much was to write a book which worked almost like a poem so all of the pieces kind of speak to each other and you see the same in a sense the same ideas refracted in different ways you know over and over again so as you say the, the stuff about privacy the stuff about children the stuff about missing parents and it all kind of happens again and again and again but in different ways because it just seems to me there's something about kind of refracting it each way which shows you something you haven't seen before well i know that incredibly exciting bit the floods in in London. It it made you reflect on what you would do yourself. I don't know, <laughs> I, I don't know what I'd do. And the other thing about borders, you know, here they are. They couldn't go down that road. They could, and what they chose to do was go around. And here we see Amar, the keeper of the bees. He was, he didn't have a country. He didn't have Bangladesh. It was all underwater. And you know how he had come around also, but without legality. Without legality, and also in his case, losing a family. You know, so oh. you have these kind of motifs that kind of recur through the book. Oh, look, just incredible. Um, it's Clade, it's published by Penguin Australia, and it's just, it's it's optimistic, <laughs> if you can say that about... The optimistic ca- catastrophe novel. <laughs> <laughs> Is there such a thing? I begin to wonder how we would address... And Those sorts of crises. Talking about addressing, yes. have you asked your author whether there's any naked men or undressing well, in his books? I can tell you there's not because I've <laughs> read it, but Robert's famous for the naked man cartoon in the age. So yes, I'm sorry. 
Why apologise? It's a form of entertainment on Friday, which we all look forward to. We do. Well, we're going to have to finish there, Jen. Okay, well, as I said, I've gone into the future, you've gone into, into the, the past. past. Mine was The Port Fairy Murders by Robert Gott, and it was a scribe publication. And Clade by James Bradley, Hamish Hamilton, which part of Penguin Penguin. Australia. Thank you, one and all. See you next You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.